All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. Uh, let's start off with what is going on on the ground. Krasnaya Gora and Bakhmut and, uh, and whatever else. <laughs> whatever else. Well, there's always lot, there's lot, there's lots going on. I mean, but the key battle, I, I'm going to say the key battle since August is the battle around Bakhmut, of which this capture, this village, Krasnaya Gora is, you know, another part of it. Because Bakhmut is the linchpin of Ukrainian defences in that part of the Donbass, Donetsk region, which Ukraine controls. If Bakhmut is captured by the Russians, the Russians gain control of the sort of key communications hub. It becomes more difficult for the Ukrainians to move troops around to reinforce their various positions. And if the Russians then capture the high ground west of Bakhmut, which is apparently very integrated into the Bakhmut defence system, they can put their artillery on the high ground and they can easily shell places like Slavyansk, Kramatorsk and the rest, basically bringing all of Donbass, all the remaining parts of Donbass, under Ukrainian control within artillery range. So, you know, we are then at the end game of the Battle of Donbass. So that's why Ukraine has defended Donbass so stubbornly, it's a Bakhmut rather, so stubbornly, why they've expended this huge number of men and machines trying to defend it. And the big news from the battlefronts is that we're getting ever closer to the end point. We're now clearly in the end game. Solidar fell a couple of weeks ago, this big town just to the north of Don Bakhmut. Now another important part of the defences of Bakhmut, a village called Krasnaya Gora, has just been captured. It sits astride one of the roads that lead into Bakhmut. It's also on high ground. Again, the importance of high ground. It overlooks some more of the Ukrainian defences. The Russians are now pushing on to the next village. This is, you know, the northern arc of Bakhmut, uh, the northern pincer, if you like. The next village is a place called Paraskovievke, which is apparently bigger village than Krasnaya Gora, but more, more difficult to defend because it's on lower ground. So, as I said, you can, the Russians can launch their artillery down and observe everything that goes on in this village. Most people expect Paraskovievke to fall within the next few days. The Russians, the southern pincer that they have, you know, pushing towards Bakhmut from the south, is now closing in on a small town called Chasov Yar, which is to the southwest of Bakhmut. This is apparently a very difficult place to defend. If these two places, Baraskovievke and Chasov Yar, fall. Well, Ukrainian forces that are still in Bakhmut itself are trapped. They can't withdraw. Even the sort of country lanes they would, and fields that they would try to withdraw from would be easily shelled by Russian troops. And we would be, in effect, in a cauldron-type situation. And this cauldron, this encirclement, would probably bring in more U Ukrainian troops than that. There are some reports that the Ukrainians are trying to withdraw their heavy weapons from Bakhmut. 
and that they might be trying to keep a rear, rear guard there. But this is all very disputed, and there's said to be arguments in Kiev going on about this between Zeluzhny, the general, the overall general and overall command of the Ukrainian forces, and President Zelensky. And, you know, I'm not convinced that this so-called withdrawal is even happening. Yeah, that's because Zelensky has already stated his plan. If it is Zelensky's plan, I mean, obviously he's getting orders from some people in, in NATO or the Pentagon who are telling him this, but he said his goal is to hold on to Bakhmut until he gets the fighter jets and the tanks, yes. of which none of them we are coming. None. Which none of them are coming. You're absolutely correct about this. By the way, the, the, you know, the, when it comes to the Abrams tanks, the Financial Times today said they won't arrive till 2024. A Russian diplomat, of course he's a Russian diplomat, perhaps he doesn't know for sure, but he thinks that these Abrams tanks will never arrive in Ukraine. Um, there are uh, Leopard 2 tanks, they were going to supply 88, apparently they can't find even half that number, because apart from Germany, which is coughed up with 14, nobody else wants to give any. And so, you know, the tanks aren't coming, at least not the modern tanks. The Ukrainians may get obsolete Leopard 1 tanks, which would be meat for the plate for the Russians, I suspect. But the tanks aren't coming. The planes aren't coming. The British have now said, you know, well, it would, you know, we don't have any fighter jets to produce to supply. Poland says we don't have any fighter jets to supply. Germany's ruled out providing fighter jets. Emmanuel Macron, French president, well, actually, fighter jets are not the priority. The Patriot systems, you remember those? All that talk about the Patriot systems and the air defence missiles, well, they're nowhere close on the horizon either. And I read today a long piece in the Financial Times, which basically also said, you know, all these weapon systems that Zelensky's begging and pleading and asking for, they're not going to materialise in any reasonable time frame. The only reason Zelensky, or this is what the Financial Times says, the reason Zelensky's asking for them is not because he really expects them, but because he wants to maintain morale in Ukraine, showed to the Ukrainians that the West is backing us. That's what the Financial Times is saying. I'm sceptical about that. But anyway, we're going to hold on in Bakhmut until these weapons appear, which is at best months away and probably never. And that's, as he correctly said, his plan. Well, yeah, he's, he's on record saying that's his plan. Yes, yeah, absolutely. He's, yeah, um, this is the Wagner uh, guys that are doing most of this work as well. What is, what yeah. is the other three, four, five hundred thousand Russian military doing? Training, building up, re-equipping. I mean, you know, this is a fact. I mean, I, I remember Alex Vershinin, who's a you know, U.S. lieutenant colonel. He was saying way back in November that if the Russians uh, uh, were in a hurry, uh, they'd launch an offensive in January. But if they were wise, they'd wait until about March so that the um, Russian forces are fully trained up, fully equipped, 
uh, um, built up to the point when they're really ready to take an offensive. And Vashin had said that he thought that the Russians would do the second. He said that they've never let themselves be pressured into acting faster than they needed to. And it's increasingly looking like he's right. So sometime in March, when the ground gets a bit harder, the mud goes, you have all those hundreds of thousands of men who have been kept back, trained up, as I said, re-equipped. We had Dmitry Medvedev, the man who's now in charge of the defence industries in Russia. He was touring a tank factory, talking about thousands of tanks being produced. We see Russian missile attacks continuing unabated. You know, every time there's a Russian missile attack, we're told it's the last one. They're about to run out of missiles. The missiles keep coming. The machines keep coming. The soldiers keep building up. They're putting pressure on various parts of the front line. Bakhmut, as I said, is a, a main battle, but, you know, they're pushing a bit in Vugladar, they're pushing a bit in uh, Svartovo, Kremenaya, and those places, but the big forces have not yet been committed. And they're spooking, that fact is spooking the Ukrainians out. So there's news that Biden will be heading to Poland to celebrate the to commemorate the uh, one-year anniversary of the of the special military operation, the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Kaluba, the foreign minister of Ukraine, he came out with a statement, and he said that come the February twenty-fourth uh, anniversary date of the of the invasion. They're going to announce some big things. Uh, yeah, weapons, sure. money, counteroffensive, uh, all kinds of stuff, he said. He said it's going to be big, is what Kalupa said. It's going to be big, very big. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I see the trend line. I see the trend line as being the exact opposite. <laughs> I see as I, I see everything just just crumbling for, for the collective West. We're just fading away, it seems. I mean, yes, yeah. Reuters came out with a report and said pretty much all of not all of NATO. A lot of NATO is is demilitarized. I mean, they they don't yes. even have any any ammo yes. to send. Yes, is are they just looking to, to to get over the one year anniversary, make a big pitch for for some more money, one final payday, and then call it quits? I don't I don't know. Well, I, mean, I I would not be at I would I would not be at all surprised. I mean, this has been the pattern. I mean, if you think about Afghanistan. If you think about South Vietnam, these are, for me, the two best analogies. What basically happened was that the people who were running things in, in Kabul and Saigon, they kept you know, talking a big game right up until the last moment. At the same time, they were piling up the cash. And then, of course, they did a quick exit with suitcases. And, I mean, you know, we covered the Afghan thing about how the president had more suitcases and money that he could load onto his plane, you know, as he was trying to flee the country. So I, I, I would not be at all surprised if that is now, to a great extent, what this is all about. Get as much money as possible. They're trying to negotiate 
for another big IMF loan, $16 billion, the word is. They're trying to get more money from all kinds of sources. So as much as possible, in as short a time as possible, because everybody knows these tanks, these machines, these aircraft are either not coming or there's no conceivable way they will arrive in time. So, you know, given that hundreds of thousands of Russian troops are now gathering, um, I'm sure everybody, even Zelensky, you know, when he's in his more objective moments, I could use a stronger word, must be aware that the writing is on the wall. And I noticed, by the way, that Biden himself has apparently again ruled out going to Ukraine. No, he's going to go to Poland. He's going to go to Poland. Not Ukraine, he he's, said he's not, yes, he's not going. He's, he's never going, going to Ukraine. He's never going to Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, never, never say never, but never say never. Well, well, remember, no, 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 uh, no U.S. president, as I seem to remember, ever visited Afghanistan. Well, I I don't know about that. I don't know about that, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Obama did. I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. Don't think so. Did her push? No, don't think so. Okay. Um, anything else to to report? Well, I mean, it's been fascinating to see how rapidly after the, you know, the euphoria of the triumphalism of the autumn, this whole thing has collapsed. I mean, the sort of mood has changed. I mean, you're talking in media, the British media, and, you know, the British media, by the way, is, you know, ground zero of pro-Ukraine media production in the West. I mean, it, I, 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 I checked out some media outlets in Poland and they are actually more sceptical in some ways about the situation in Ukraine than the British media has been. So, I mean, they're now, they've now basically stopped reporting Ukrainian news to anything like the kind of degree they did. When they do, it's now... You, really offbeat stories about, you know, somebody doing something there, you know, but it's not really battlefield news any longer. So it's fascinating to see how this whole thing has crumbled. And of course, perhaps one sign that we're in the end game was Zelensky's great triumphant tour. His, you know, visit to London, he's addressing the British Parliament, his visit to Brussels, all of those things, it, it, it looks increasingly like a valedictory <laughs> rather than, you know, the great triumphant procession of the conquering leader. It's like it was their way of saying, you know, goodbye to him. Yeah, I'm, I think he was probably running around uh, London looking at uh, which property he's going to eventually settle. Well, exactly. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way... It, 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 he left I mean, with nothing, really. He left he didn't absolutely get anything with, from that. He trip got absolutely think about it. No, I mean, uh, uh, one British cabinet minister, as I said, used an expletive and you know said, "What fighter jets is this man talking about? We haven't any to give." And as I said, we're now getting slightly sour articles about his visit appearing. So there was one by Simon Jenkins in the Guardian, a much stronger one by Jeremy Warner in the Daily Telegraph. So. The, you know, there are clearly now sceptical voices, even in London, starting to surface, even in London. And as I said, it, it looks as if it looks increasingly to me as if 
um, after the, you know, the sort of rush of excitement around the Ramstein uh, um, meeting of a few weeks ago, when the Germans were basically tricked and bullied and pressured into sending tanks they didn't want to send, that the whole thing has now basically exhausted itself. We have the Munich Security Conference coming in about a week's time. And we'll see what happens there. But if it all looks as deadbeat as seems to be the case for the moment, if it is like that, then we can say definitely that Ukraine, the story of Ukraine, this crisis is over in its essentials, that people have given up on it, that they're now looking and thinking about the next war. Yeah, well, the question for Munich is, is who's going to be attending? When do, you do you have any, any idea who's going to be there? No, not yet. I presume most of them. I, I, don't, think I, mean, Biden is, I don't think Biden no, is there. No, Biden isn't going. But then, of course, he wasn't there last year. He sent Kamala Harris in instead. <laughs> so we'll see whether she does, she, she's the person who goes or not. Anyway, we'll see what happens, whether there's a, another great attempt to orchestrate some great, you know, um, rallying round Zelensky and Ukraine yeah, or whether or they, whether they can, on the contrary they're looking for a, they're starting to look for a way not to not for a clean exit from Ukraine that's impossible now but a means to manage the narrative when the whole thing falls apart yeah the, they can rally all they want around uh Zelensky, they, they, they can say anything they want about their support and as long as it takes. But you look at the reality of the situation is they, the, the physical reality. There are no tanks. There are no fighter jets. There is no ammo. If they were to give tanks and fighter jets, if they had them available and were to give them the time it takes to train them is going to be way too long. Germany is on on some sort of fast-track training program for the Ukraine uh, military, which they say they can get them into the Leopards by six to eight weeks. Okay, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but it, it's not going to make a difference. And everyone knows it's not going to make a difference. No. I mean, this is obvious. Uh, you even have commanders in, I think in the Polish military, a former commander said, it's over. Yes, it's I know, over. absolutely. Ukraine doesn't I, I... have the capability to launch... Uh, to launch an, offen an offensive. So they can say all they want. They can rally all they want. Money, money is, is not as easy to dish out to Ukraine either. You had Matt Gates who came out the other day in the US and he, he proposed a Ukraine fatigue resolution. No more money to Ukraine. I mean, people are getting sick of the money being handed out to, to Zelensky as well. The Washington Post ran an opinion, opinion article just yesterday. And they said that basically Ukraine is corrupt. So, I mean, this is the Washington Post. People are going to read this and they're going to say, OK, so I just gave $120 billion to the corrupt uh, Ukraine government. And then, you know, they said that's why there's all these purges and everything so that they can stamp out corruption. But the bottom line is that the Washington Post admitted that Ukraine is corrupt. And then you have the yeah. sanctions, the 10th sanctions package. I, I went over it uh, today. There was Politico had some, some bullet points from, from sources as to what it's going to be. There's, there's nothing left. I mean, they've, they've exhausted everything, it seems. Everything, yeah. Yes. 
Uh, you're completely, you're absolutely correct. And this is, this is entirely true. This is exactly right. There's no, there's no arms. There's no tanks. There's no ammunition. Ukraine has, by the way, come out and said that they're almost out of ammunition, but there's no more apparently to give them. So, I mean, the whole thing has run its course, by the way, to a degree that I find astonishing. And, you know, in Britain, we're now hearing, you know, British, the British military would not survive a day other kind of war that's being fought in Ukraine. That's being said in London, that Britain's own military. I, I think this must be an exaggeration, by the way. But anyway, that's what some people have said, you know, that we out of ammunition within a day if we were faced with this kind of conflict that we're seeing in Ukraine. And I think that's absolutely right. I think they are, they are running out. They're running out of steam. They're running out of money. They're running out of ammunition. They're running out of public support for this thing. And I think that Ukrainians, the Ukrainian leaders must be aware of this at some level. So, of course, there, Zelensky goes on his great tour. He wants to get commitments. The commitments didn't really crystallise. About some more money will go his way. And then, of course, when the moment comes, he, he and perhaps the others, well, they'll be packing or pocket, you know, packing their suitcases and flying to Miami, or, or London, or Paris, or Monaco, yeah. or wherever it is they want to go. Yeah, the money and IMF loan, is that going to really solve the problem? That's, that's going to make things a lot worse. But Well, see, I mean, it won't, is the answer. I mean, to answer that question very simply, yes. Uh, my final comment is, I, I have a sense that the Nord Stream article really did hurt them. Yes. But I mean them. I mean the Biden White House. I mean Newland. Yes. I mean Blinken and and Sullivan. Even though they're memory holding it, they're not talking about it, they've launched a bunch of balloons to distract everyone from it. I think this article did a tremendous amount of damage. And I just have a hunch, a feeling that uh, the people that support Biden in the escalation in Ukraine are saying... Okay, this was a bad idea. We supported you, Biden, in blowing up Nord Stream, but now that this is out, you know, it's time to to wrap this up. And the people that warned Biden not to, if if you believe what Seymour Hersh reported, of course, the people that uh, allegedly warned Biden to not do this, they're kind of saying, "We told you, you know, stop this. Enough. It's over. Let's end this thing." And uh, there was a report from the Russian foreign foreign intelligence services that the U.S. is planning some sort of activities with Syrian uh, fighters that they're training in Syria with with terrorists that they're training in Syria to hit at diplomats and stuff like that. And, and I was just thinking this morning, a report like that, I probably would say, uh, I don't, it's coming from Russian intel. Who can believe it? But after the Nord Stream thing, no, no, no. I now think to myself, and I, and I think... You know, after what they did at Nord Stream, you know, why wouldn't they do something like that? So, I mean, I, my point in all this, I think this Nord Stream story actually did a lot more damage than uh, all of us uh, believe it to, to 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 not have done. I think it's done a lot of damage to them. I think it's you're actually absolutely, playing a key you, role you, in the de-escalation. Right, you're the de-escalation, you're the, the, de the deflation of, of yes. Ukraine. 
You're absolutely right about this. Can I just say there was also a big, big piece in Global Times, Chinese newspaper, basically saying the same thing. After Nord Stream 2, these people can do anything. <laughs> I mean, this is a, these people are basically out of control. That was essentially what he was saying. And that's China, and that's Russia, and of course they're the US's adversaries, so you perhaps expect that. But now those kind of comments start to carry more traction than they would have done, say, a few weeks ago. That's already, you know, a significant thing. But I agree. I mean, first of all, I should say, and I've had now multiple people from Germany telling me that it's in Germany, it's a very big story. I mean, you know, it may not be the top headline story. There may be criticisms of it. But anybody in Germany who is familiar, who follows the news, knows about this. I mean, that may not be true in Britain, but in Germany, it is a story. People are talking about it. It's been talked about within the political system, you know, within the Bundestag, the, the parliament, everybody, the, the industrialists, the, all those people, they know about this story. And by the way, they all believe it. I mean, you know, one of the reasons they believe it is because the denials have not been convincing. I come back to what I said before. If this story was untrue, then the denials would be a lot more convincing. They would have come at the very least from the head of the CIA, who was supposed to have been involved in this thing. Uh, passing it off to middle-ranking people, spokespeople, to deny it, it just isn't going to convince anybody. So I think that's true. I think that's gone all the rounds of the European capitals. I think it's consistent with most people's experience of their interactions with Biden. I mean, we, we discussed on, you know, the Danny Highfong's programme, how angry he gets. You, you saw it on that programme, how angry this man is. Nobody likes dealing with somebody who can just get into angry like that. And I've heard lots of stories about how difficult Biden himself is to deal with on a one-to-one -one basis. So, I mean, there's all, all those doubts have already been there for some time. This will have crystallised them. But the place where the doubts will have grown most, obviously, are in the United States itself. And this has been talked about in Congress. Of that, I have no doubt. It's been discussed right across the military security intelligence establishment of the United States, they will be saying to themselves, this is a White House that is out of control, that is making incredibly reckless decisions, that isn't um, taking proper advice from people, that's making these wild decisions, and they're, they're turning out wrong. They're not helping. The, the, the whole pattern of decision-making is to take ever more extreme steps that turn out badly, starting with, you know, freezing the Russian central bank's assets. And as we now know, that didn't even work. They only got 36 billion instead of the 300 billion they thought they were going to get. So that didn't work. The sanctions in total have failed. The military pressure, the, you know, the arms supplies to Ukraine, that's none of this is working. And we see, in fact, how far these people are going. And I think absolutely, I, I don't have any doubt that you're right, that it's crystallising all the doubts, hardening all the doubts, causing people to become more sceptical, more angry, more doubtful. And I think, just as you, 
that this article by Hirsch, it's a bomb with a you know, slow action fuse, perhaps, but it's quietly already detonating. Yeah. It also damages not only the US, it damaged Norway. Of course it did. Sweden, Denmark, all those yeah. countries that were involved. It made Germany look bad. Yeah. Made Germany look very weak. All those shows yes. look very weak. Yes. There's tension between him and Baerbach. I mean, I think all of these things yes. happening, you know, at this moment is is not a it's not a coincidence. This no. article might have been a a really big turning point. Yes, I agree with that. And and you know, I, I this is in no way to. Uh, you know, suggest anything about the quality of Seymour Hersh's um, journalism, which is outstanding. But you know, obviously, there's two. There's there's more than one person involved in this story. Hersh is one. The people who provided him with it, all this information, of course, they were following an agenda. That that, that you know, I, I I've seen some people say that as if that somehow makes us ought to make us wonder about you know the bona fides of this story it doesn't what it does is it shows it proves that the doubts are getting stronger and that some people in the national security establishment in the united states want the truth out there about the kind of things that this administration is prepared to do. So you're absolutely right. It's not a coincidence it came out now. It's not a coincidence it came out at about the same time as the just after the Rand Corporation report, the CSIS report, the IMF report. Hirsch has been investigating and preparing the story for three months. You think about it, all of those reports, they would have taken around three months to prepare. The timing, I think... Is increasingly clear. So Hirsch yeah. has played a central role in change, and, and his story have played a central role in diverting the focus of this uh, of, of this conflict, in, in trying to slow this runaway train and bring it perhaps to a stop. Hmm. Anyway, it'd be a very interesting. Very interesting Munich Security Conference coming. That's all I was going to say. Yeah. What, what do you make real quick of the U.S. issuing the warning to Americans in uh, Russia to get out the U.S. embassy? Yeah. Russia. You see, this is this is this is the same people. Bear in mind that um, the State Department is ground central. <laughs> so I mean, this is. I, I mean, the other New side. Lincoln. Lowland Blinken, uh, all of those people, they haven't gone away. They're still there. Um, and the State Department isn't just under their control. It, 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 it's the mindset that's evolved in the State Department over many years now is essentially a neocon one. So they're, they're pushing back. So they're trying to push back. They're escalating. Nothing has happened over the last few weeks that would justify making a statement like that. There's been no new developments in Russia that are, that are suggesting that. Perhaps the one thing that might be causing some annoyance is lots of expats coming along and saying, well, you know, we've just been to Russia, you know, we're just living in Russia, everything's fine here, the sanctions aren't having any effect. That might be what's causing all this 
annoyance, but I can't help but think that it's partly also a riposte to the pressure that's now building up in Washington to try and find a way out of this affair. So they're looking to crank things up, even as everybody else is trying to crank things down. All right, we'll end it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are also on Rockfin and look for us on the Duran shop. 10% off use code. Good day. Take care.